You kill a Christian because it was dead. Until a Christian has experienced a kind of self-awareness that prepares them to take on this characteristic of being empathetic. To that degree that we are not there yet is the degree to which we cannot walk in this world like Jesus. You may be thinking, well, I don't remember ever reading the word empathy in Scripture, and you have not. It's a modern word. But what it means is a very, very old word. When you combine together the biblical terms of compassion and mercy, you get the idea of what we understand in a psychological term and a newer word as empathy. But without the power of the Scriptures and the power of Jesus, the words have little meaning. This is a great story in John chapter 4. I think about it often. I think about it pretty much all the time. Because for me, it is the gospel in a synopsis kind of form that just shouts out to me in so many places. I don't know how many sermons you could preach on this chapter, but you could preach a lot. This will be the first time I've preached it this way. And it's not about the whole text, but it's simply about the situation where there are two cries for empathy being voiced. The image that we all are aware of is here is this woman at the well. In a surprising way in the scripture, she runs into this strange Jewish man who asks her for a drink of water. This Jewish man, however, not only is identifying with her in a way that was not common in his culture, not even allowed, and certainly not in his lines of faith, he's gone far beyond any Jew's understanding of what it means to be a follower of God and taking himself into a new territory with these people called Samaritans. These people that were untouchable. These people you didn't share meals with. These people that you thought were not pure because although they had some Jewish ways and some Jewish customs, they had some ways and customs that were not Jewish and were against the law. These people were a term that we do understand sometimes in our world today. They were spiritual half-breeds. Physical half-breeds. They had intermarried with those non-Jewish and taken up some of their practices. It's a strong term, and I don't use that word harshly. In fact, I don't even use that word. Because it's a ter term that just kind of turns over my stomach and does harm to my body. At this point in my life, I think that somebody is being half of something and half of another because of their birth realities. Now I know that in Scripture in the Old Testament there was a days and times where the, the followers of God were taught and called to be pure. And they thought that that was as outward as it was inward. And it was because they were God's people in an international sense with heaven and earth being combined, making them God's children because of who they were, not who they were becoming. It was something that happened to them, but it, didn't, it failed to permeate completely the full content of the law. So therefore, what God had intended for them to be their reality had not been the reality. And here Jesus comes and he asks this lady to give me a drink of water. And she says, why are you a Jew? Asking me for a drink. In other words, that feeling was good both ways, didn't it? You think the Samaritans were glad to see Jewish people strolling into town? No, they were not. 
because they knew there was animosity between the two groups of people. But another thing you can miss if you're not careful is that the first person who was in need here was Jesus himself. He had been walking, taking a journey from Judea to get out of John the Baptist's way and not take away from his ministry, to go to Galilee. But he was going through Samaria. And he was thirsty. She was so shocked by who he was and what he represented and, he, and that he was speaking to her that she misses that point. How often do we miss the point of what's going on in our life because we don't see it right in front of our face? We ignore the obvious. You say, what are you talking about, preacher? I'm talking about going to a church dinner in churches all around this land. And now with some 38 years of practice in that, I can tell you for a fact that fellowship dinners in most cases are the most ostracizing events in the whole church. You know why now, don't you? You sit and you eat with the same people every week. You sit with your Sunday school class people. You sit with your family that you eat with all the time at home. You sit with people that you know in the church and you associate with. But that's where you go. It's comfortable there, isn't it? And then you look across the room and there's that person that dare walk into our intimate gathering and sit down for a meal who's sitting all by themselves. How many people have to pass them by before somebody comes and sits down with them? You say, well, as soon as a staff member gets there, they'll do that. <laughs> and we do do that. But you know what? When I go to visit a church and a staff member says, welcome, I expect them to say, welcome. And they better say it well, or I'm not going to feel very welcome. But what I'm impressed by is when people who sit in the pews come and say, welcome to our congregation, we're glad to have you. My name is whatever. What's yours? That impresses me a lot more than the pastor coming and saying hello. Now I know that people think, yeah, but it doesn't impress them as much as if you say it. Yeah, that's a nice comment. <coughs> but you see, this thing called empathy should invade our souls. The words in that last song are so good that I'm going to ask the people upstairs who have to watch us through a TV camera to put the words on the screen back up there. Just go through the verses and let them play this morning because those words are too good to be ignored. And I want to pick up on some of them as I go through with the rest of what I already prepared. Uh, once again, wasn't that great, great experience? You know, I've been to a lot of churches. I've worshipped in a lot of places. I've worshipped by the lake and it was awesome. And I've worshipped with youth when it was awesome. Sometimes they were so boisterous. It was crazy good. And sometimes they were so silent. It was a blessed blessing. And I've worshipped with Great schoolers who don't really know how, but they're trying. I've seen, I listened to the voices of a couple of young ladies behind me today when they chimed in on that song they knew. I've been to congregations where, where the choir was beautiful, the band was awesome, and nobody else was singing hardly. And I've been to churches where the place was vibrating with large traditional worship. But I tell you what, you can't get any more real in worship than you get in this place with a team of people who lead you with their voices and with their hearts. It was wonderful to be in that place because here the greatness of our Lord the greatness of his renown to use a songwriter's words and his presence standing before you is tangible and it's believable it's something that we cling to this Jesus asked this woman for a drink and she didn't even get it 
But it was amazing because he was dealing with a Samaritan. He was dealing with a woman in public who was a strange woman. She drew her water at noon. Nobody went to the well to get water at noon. It's too hot. Only someone who needed to be by himself would go there. Only someone who felt ostracized would get water at that time. Only someone who felt beaten down by her community would go there. Yes, this woman had been married five times before. Yes, she was living a, a life. But she was, and she was an immoral person. And Jesus reached out to her to touch her in the midst of her sin that he might give her water more powerful than the water from Jacob's well. He broke all the rules in just that initial encounter. We get so hung up about rules. I'm so tired of rules. I'm just telling you now. And God bless the Methodist Church. We got a lot of rules. <laughs> we got so many rules that we rewrite them every four years. <laughs> and every four years we listen to our hundreds of thousands of people. If they have to point they make it, we try to see if it needs to be changed. And then we vote on it, we go back and we try to enforce those rules again. You know, rules are great for those who need rules. What God is looking for is some Christians who don't need so many rules. What God is looking for is Christians who will know the rules, but who will live out of themselves into the present realities of the people they encounter. They won't let a rule get in the way of offering somebody Jesus, for goodness sake. They will not allow religious hang-ups to separate themselves. And they are brave enough to do the hard things in life. We downplay who Christians are way too much. Christians are the people who have to obey all the rules. They have to be quiet and quiet. No, no, no. Oh, they need to be that kind of sort over here. But they need to be much more than that. They need to be brave. They need to be courageous. They need to be compassionate. They need to be ever on the alert to seek out those people who are lost. They need to be fanatical. God knows we've got enough calm Christians. We need a few who are excited about their faith. Now, I didn't say crazy. I didn't say maniacs. But I mean those people who are so crazy as to reach out beyond the walls of their church and extend the hands of love the way Jesus did. So that the greatness of his name would cause wonder amidst the people. So that faith would be more than religiosity and church attendance. So that faith would be more than something that was claimed to be alive, so that it would actually be empathetic. Now, first of all, you have to be aware of yourself. If you get in touch with your own feelings, you've got a chance, an opportunity then, to get into touch with the feelings of others. If you don't have that self-awareness of yourself, it's going to be pretty easy for you to be non-empathetic. You know a non-empathetic is the kind of person who can walk by a person who's starving and give them nothing. We don't reward veterans. Probably that person's making a good living. Why should I give them money? They're probably just a scam. Maybe they are. The truth is, you don't know that. You can't read their whole life. It costs five dollars to get a meal at McDonald's. Your children have five dollars, and quite frankly, might be more likely to give it to that poor, hungry person 
than some of those adults. Because we have intellectualized their experience. We have categorized them in place where we have them captured, and we feel good about that. Now, I don't have to respond to everybody's need because they're probably just on the tape and probably going to every church in the community. I know that. You know that. But some of them are really hungry. And not just for food at McDonald's, but they're hungry for somebody to care about them. Some of them are really sick. They have an illness that will not go away. They have an illness that will not allow them to take their medication because they got well. And next week they're sick again because they quit taking it when they got well. That's how sick they are. They have neuroses. They have issues. They have angers. Some of them have been treated hardly. Some of them have been abused at home. You know who the greatest category we ought to be concerned about? Are the non-empathetic people who become those who abuse others, but who become criminal, often case. In fact, the far extreme of being non-empathetic is criminality. I cannot walk into your child's bedroom, beat and drag them off and hold them captive for a year as a criminal if I had any empathy at all in my body. And we all have an empathetic quality, but sometimes we have battered it down. Sometimes we have pushed it down and controlled it so much that we want to allow ourselves to hurt because there's so much hurting around us. We just give up and we just give in and we're just not brave anymore. And if you're still comfortable, shame on you. You're not listening. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about America. I'm talking about our nation. Don't give me that stuff about all the tax money we're sending to feed money. We can feed the whole world if we set our mind to it, but not and build our kingdoms here. That's what bugs me. But in this text, we're, not, we're talking about empathy and having it. Empathy, knowing another person's feelings. Empathy, feeling what that person feels without taking it on upon yourself so that it paralyzes you. That's sympathy. Responding compassionately to another person's distress is our acts of mercy in Scripture, and we call it being empathetic. You know, if I'm sitting out there and I'm really hungry, and you come by and say, I'm going to pray for you so that you'll be better this week. <laughs> I got a message from somebody this week asking me to pray for them for the next 30 days. So the rest of you probably got that message too. So I'm praying that this person feels better, that they're happier. No, I'm not. I'm praying simply and over and over again Lord, heal this person. Period. That's what I'm praying for for 30 days. Lord, heal this person. There's not another message that has great meaning for that person outside that message right now in that person's life. Some of you have been at that place. Some of you have been at that spot. Some of you in this congregation today are wounded and you haven't told a soul about it. But it's hard to have empathy for you if you don't tell us about it. We'll be glad to have some empathy for you. Maybe even enough empathy to perform acts of mercy to help you after we have made sure you understand that we know how you feel. Because if you don't know how they feel first, your acts of mercy are rarely appreciated. Example one, you come home from work. Have a good day, dear? Yeah, it's all right. I've had a terrible day. Really? What's for supper? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I describe some of you the way you come home? 
you guys, you men, you unfilling clods, made in the image of God. Where is that image in Jesus' life? Oh, I know it's much better to come in and they say, the dishwater's broken. The dishwasher's broken. And you run in and you analyze what's wrong with the dishwasher and you can call it and bring you a new one. That feels good. Yeah, get into that. What your wife wants you to do is to sit down and look her in the eyes and say, my day was okay. How was yours? And then you wait for her to answer. And then you listen without giving an answer to her problems, without telling her what she should have done. Letting her know that you really are identifying with her feelings. And some of you are saying, well, that's just preposterous. No man can do that. <laughs> and you know what? The devil's pretty good at convincing us of that. That's why the divorce rate is still at 50%. Because we think we can't have empathy because we're males. Everybody's brain is programmed to be empathetic. That's what builds relationships. I'm just going to go wait out to some deep water. You may say, well, I don't want to go with you. You may say, well, we serve too much. We don't have time for it. You know, there's a door at the back. Anytime you've heard all you can hear, you can just leave. <laughs> David asked me, he said, are you okay if the scene goes a little longer? You're not bothered by time? I said, what time? Yeah. He said, worship time. And I said, sure, I'm bothered by time. We need to be out when I get hungry, but I don't get too hungry until 1230. <laughs> We're always out early as far as I'm concerned. Let's think about that empathy. Let's think about what that means to us if we're going to be followers of Christ. Who not only hear John chapter 8, the adulterous woman. Nicodemus coming to him in the night. Day after day, people crying out, have mercy on me, Lord, because they, they're sitting, they can't get well in their culture. Think about everything he said to with the disciples. Think about how he listened to them patiently and knew their feelings. Now, don't jump, because Jesus had a quality we don't have. He could snap his fingers and fix their issue. He could call down bread from heaven and feed 5,000 men, women, and children. We can't do that. He didn't just know their feelings. He, as the Son of God, ministered to their feelings. He solved their problems. But in empathetic, true empathy, as we understand it in our day and age, is first of all just going with the feelings. I'm confident you'll act. You know what? If you really see a hungry person on the street, I don't believe there's one of you that won't give them something to feed. If you come across, came across an emaciated adult lying in the streets who obviously hadn't eaten in five days, I don't believe there's a one of you who would pass that person by and give them food. Not a one of you. Right? Right. right. I'm pretty weak, right? <laughs> but I believe you would not stop. I believe you would. I believe you would stop and you would tend to them. The problem is, we don't see them or they don't look hungry enough, right? Or we're afraid they're out of the scam. God knows we don't want to be vulnerable with somebody taking advantage of us. Whew, no good American wants to be that way. You know? It's just, it, it, we already are so empathetic. We, we send millions of our hard-earned dollars over to feed people who are starving to death. And you know, they don't even appreciate it. So let's just quit sending them food. Let's just make them angrier. Let's just see if we can just totally ignore them as we call ourselves Christian. Let's just see that if we can be, ah, I can't do that, Doug. Take that thought over there. That's a political thought. I don't want to use it. 
but it's so tempting. Because politicians are such easy targets. But what about us? What about us? How aware are we of ourselves and how aware are we of what people need? Knowing a person's feelings, feeling what that person feels, and responding compassionately. The opposite of empathy is criminality at its far extreme. A much less greater example, but I want to use it gently because it, it, it strikes a long cards. But there are a group of people in our world who are autistic and all kinds of levels of autism. But autism is, a, is a, not a dangerous, but a real symptom of some people who can't feel feelings because of the way they were born and what went wrong in their birth process because of who they are. But you know, really, they can't understand feelings. They can't be empathetic because their brain won't allow them to. Yes, you can look it up. It's in the, in the, the brain studies. Criminality, benign autism, where it's the, the case where you know you just can't express feelings. And <laughs> the rest of us, which are most of us, most of us have the brain capability not to be empathetic. I mean, to be empathetic, but we have beaten it down with practicality. We have be beaten it down with well, we can't feed all the people in the world. Okay, well, how about let's just feed two or three hundred? How about let's do something for somebody? that says we, the church, have a heart for them. <coughs> How about when we hear about or witness abuse, that we stop not only to pray for the one being abused, but how about praying for the one who is the abuser? Because the only reason they can abuse someone is because they lack empathy. It has died in them. They don't feel what they should feel when they do what they do to the innocent, to the young, to the helpless in their presence. It's not just simply that they're an evil creature, although it looks like that on the outside. It is that they have lost the power to care. Empathy takes on many forms. It looks many different kinds of ways. Now, the formation of empathy goes along with our normal and natural moral development as we get older. Take a child. You know, yesterday, Michael caused us to have our food. We were at a 50th wedding, wedding anniversary in a home that had stairs. You know, two-year-olds love stairs. Some of them are smart two-year-olds in that they seem to know that those stairs are kind of frightening. And some two-year-olds are like Michael Lou. Michael Lou looks at the stairs and sees a challenge and an opportunity to exert her freedom. And so yesterday, while everybody was sitting at tables, Michael was climbing the stairs, Sarah was at the foot of the stairs, and she decided, jump! And before Sarah could say no and take one step forward, she leaped from about six steps up. Fortunately, the angle was good, and Sarah caught her, and about three people had heart attacks and saw her jump from sitting around the room. You know, it's kind of, we all went, and I'm going, you better stay close to that child. <laughs> I'm going to put a tether on her and keep her right there. Because she has no fear of leaping. No fear of leaping out into the unknown. She's so sure that daddy or mama's going to catch her in the swimming pool. Now, that becomes problematic because she's out there by herself. 
What will her little brain tell her? Well, we don't know. Because her brain is still developing. You see, the reality is that as we grow up, we develop. A three or four or five-year-old usually is very sensitive to the pain of others. By the time they get to be teenagers, sometimes something else has happened. You know what that something else might be? It might be called meism. It might be because I'm so wound up in my own stuff that I can't see anybody else's stuff unless they're my very best friend. I might not even see my sister's stuff or my brother's stuff. Heaven forbid, another student's stuff. Because you see, the older we get, we start out very self-centered. We get kind of compassionate as we grow a little older and older children can be touched by things that are hurting or challenging. And then we grow older and we learn to turn a deaf ear to most of it. How does that happen? Well, it happens beginning in the church if we're not careful. Because we then seem to be lacking of empathy in the lives of others. That person deserves to be had. That person should be in capital punishment. That person can't come into the church. Look at how they live. The keys to empathetic responses to others, by the way, are mostly nonverbal. You, you know your words are important, but 90% of communication is nonverbal. Now, I usually try to explain this to my wife when we're having a difficulty. The difficulty being that she's acting one way and I'm perceiving it that way. And she says, I wasn't thinking that at all. I'm not mad at you. I'm not angry. And I say, I know you're not. But your eyes are squinty. <laughs> your body posture is screaming out that you wish to squash me like a bug. <laughs> but I'm just too big a bug to squash. And she says, that's not what I'm thinking at all. That's called mind reading. And she's right. And if she says that's not what I'm thinking, then I have to back up, sit down and say, did I read her right? Every now and then I have to remind her, I've been reading people for 38 years for a living. Every now and then she said, yeah, we ought to get it right at home. Yeah. <laughs> I played both sides of the entertainment this morning. The reality too, is true that in every couple there's some binary that goes on, we think we know what they mean. And if we're good at it, if we develop the skills, you really are right most of the time. People do communicate with their eyes, with their body language, with their actions, with their posture. People really do say a lot. You've got to watch them. So when you go into a difficult situation, you have to have a bridle on your emotions to be sure that what you're communicating with your face is what you really feel inside. And vice versa. The preaching illustration for that for young preachers in seminary is this. Don't you know that God loves you and is gentle as a sheep? <laughs> yeah, I heard a preacher preach that way. <laughs> on TV a lot. <laughs> really entertaining. But a lot of times what they're saying with their body it's just wiping out the message they're saying with words. And we do the same thing. We just love you. We're so glad you came. Could you move down one row? You're in my seat. <laughs> but we're so glad you're here. And we walk off and we never told them our names. And they're going, yeah, you're really touched up here, I can tell. You don't even know who I am. You just walked off. 
say it so many ways. And every time we say it, someone is bruised. Okay, I'm getting tired now. I stand before you now. That, that second verse, is that not, is it been changed to the verses? I just keep looking up at that one. Keep, show me another verse or two up there. There's one I want to remember. So if you can flip those verses up there now, you're hearing my voice. You're wondering which one. I don't know, but not that one. There you go. You are not against this champion of heaven. You made a way for all to enter in. Oh my goodness. We need to be making a way for people to enter in. But I need to get to the toward the end of this. So let's do this. This is what empathy is not. It is not simple agreement and not conceding they are right or wrong. It is simply letting them know that you feel what they feel in the situation. Empathy is not sympathy. Because you see, empathy keeps the subject on the other person. Sympathy takes on an emotional load of another, and then we become the target because we feel bad, because they feel bad. Then it's more about us than it is about them. That is not empathy. Empathy is not just being civil. Well, it sounds like you had a bad day. I hope you have a better one the rest of the day. We'll see you soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Empathy is not or at least it is more than an intellectual stance. How are you today? Very good? You having trouble at school? Well, I'm sorry you had trouble at school today. I'm sure it'll be better tomorrow because every day is better tomorrow. Thank you, Mom. I mean, the worst class I've ever been in my life. And you just shouted intellectually to me, I don't care about your feelings. I don't care that this is the worst year of your life in school. Mom didn't intend to say that. But she reinforced it by telling Dad, and Dad came in in even a more intellectual way. You'll never get a job if you don't get over yourself. <laughs> I'm having a bad year here. Can anybody, somebody feel me? Touch me. Make me know it's real. It is not agreeing to take on the person's issues. Nor is it feeling like you have to fix them. Because many of the times we're just not capable of that. But we are capable of letting them know we understand them. Why is it so hard to be empathetic? I really am closing now, just to let you know who we are in this game. This game called life. And you need to know that the landing is a little rough. Okay? Impediments to empathy are, first of all, that we are prone to judge people. We are hardwired to judge if a person is safe or not safe in our very brains. And because of that, that brain, especially if you're the logical type of person, take that as a sexist, gender issue, conduct, or not, I don't care. Just take it. We are prone to judge people, and while we listening to them, we are judging them, and that very act of what's going on inside our brain while we're doing two things at once is affecting our body postures and everything we say, and it's preventing us from connecting. Don't tell me I did right or wrong. Just understand it. Men, just understand it. Wives, 
teach your clients how to respond. They need help. And they won't do it easily most of the time. My wife has a way of doing it. She walks away when I'm not listening sometimes, occasionally. And sometimes she does it by saying something outrageous to see if I really am listening. And I parry back what she said with no feeling. And she looks at me like, you despicable, despicable man. And she's right, most of the time. I have excuses that you're not interested in unless you're men. I sell those if you have time. I'm not saying they work, but we've been at it 42 years and she's still buying, so I guess they're not. If you judge somebody, you can't communicate with them. Hello, my name is Mary, and I'm in a same-sex relationship. Really? Let's go to the altar. I'd like to pray for you. But I came to you about a problem at work. I don't care. You know, we need to pray about your lifestyle. I came to the church, and I was dressed so poorly, nobody spoke to me. I came to the church, and nobody invited me into their small group. I came to the church, and it was as if I didn't exist, because nobody spoke to me. I sought God, but nobody sought me. See, if you judge people before you hear them, you're doomed in that relationship. And that's not just a one-time event, it's a continuous thing that goes on in relationships. We have to listen. We have to feel what they're feeling if we're really going to communicate with them. Another impediment to empathy is it's nearly impossible to express empathy if you're gripped by stress. When a person walks up and stands in front of many of you, I'm guessing, and tells you that they've been wanting to follow Jesus for a long time, but they don't like going to church. I don't really like church people. And I don't really think the church is really going to help me in my daily life. There's another tape that gets to play in your mind back there. It starts out with saying, I don't really like church. This person's a heathen. This person's going to hell. This person is lost. And you forgot what they said next because you were so hung up on this is a heathen person I'm talking to. Judgmentalism causes you stress too. I gotta get this right because this is what Jesus needs to say. <laughs> you know, we're the superior ones around here, right? We're church people. If you are stressed because the person you're sitting across from smells bad or doesn't have a regular job, it's gonna be very hard for you to have any empathy for their situation and God and what they are. Because you're too hung up about how they present themselves down the front. Not only stress is a danger associated with our fear of people who are not like ourselves, or if they're part of a group who does particular things, that just automatically, we get so stressed that <coughs> we just can't relate. You see, if someone challenges our stereotypes of people, it's really hard for us to be empathetic. 
We know how we want church people to behave, and they ought to get up with the program. It's so easy for the church to be sitting in a judgment seat even when they don't think they are. It's impossible to be empathetic if you don't make a real attempt to understand another person's point of view, even if you are convinced they're wrong while they're telling it to you. Get the convincing out of the side and just listen to them. And you know what happens when you really listen to people? When you really listen to people, it makes that re relationship stronger and better than it's ever been before. Ask any married man who's made hardly any attempt at listening to his wife. And you'll find that every time he makes an attempt to really listen, to feel it, his relationship gets better in all other kinds of ways. Instead of getting fried crickets for dinner, he gets steak. You know. You get the picture. It's simple, it's stupid. But it's real. I'm going to stop now because it's time for us to begin this idea of building a better us. And if you become more self-aware and you work at being more empathetic, you will become a better you. You will become more like Jesus. And you will have an opportunity to do incredible things in the lives of people for the church and for the kingdom's sake. If you cannot be vulnerable enough to allow yourself risking relationships with people unlike you, and if your heart is not filled with compassion so that you're not moved by other persons' experiences that are so negative, and if you become so me-focused that I can't be other-focused, then you're not going to be an empathetic Christian. It's going to be very hard to be a very Christian at all. So I'm asking you today to fight the urge to ignore the ugly in our world. Don't give in to its hopeless and don't give in to the fact that you can't make a difference. I'm going to ask you to fight the urge to be self-centered and become more other-centered in your life. And by other-centered, I don't just mean within the body of Christ. I mean in your neighborhood, your place of work, and all around you. And finally, I'm going to ask you to consider, if you want to be a better you, to just give up. Just give up. And enter into the life that Christ has called us to. The life of living like Jesus. Caring.
But anyone who needs to pray, Lord, come and pray. Be worried about the time or the circumstances just to come. That he need a savior to come and share with us the longing for Christ. So that any who are ready to become part of this church.